0: Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, Ann and fellow host Chris Crane are back for a new episode with special guest Adam Smith founder of the Alliance for Sensible Markets. Adam joins us this week to talk about the recent developments around interstate commerce in the cannabis industry, including recent legislation passed in Washington State and California. Adam walks us through all facets of these developments, including what it means for MSOs and single state operators, the likelihood the federal government would allow interstate commerce to proceed, and ultimately how it will benefit consumers in the long run. Adam also previews his upcoming webinar set for Wednesday, May 10th, where he will be discussing these issues in greater detail. We've included a link for our listeners to register for the webinar in our show notes and encourage everyone to sign up. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Adam Smith, founder of the Alliance for Sensible Markets.
1: Hello and welcome to the Green Rush podcast. This is your host, Chris Crane, along with my colleague Ann Donahoe, welcoming our favorite guest, Adam Smith. Adam, welcome to the Green Rush.
2: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I hate to see the list of your other guests if I am your favorite.
1: (laughs) Well, you are my, you are, you are, you are my favorite podcast uh, co-host for those who have not listened. Uh, Adam and I uh, uh, co-hosted uh, and, and worked together for many, many years on Marijuana Today and on Marijuana Tomorrow. We've podcasted for a long time, but it's been months since we've done it. And so this is, uh, this is, this is a real treat personally for me. And uh, I'm sure it's a treat for Adam to be back with me. Cause you know, why wouldn't it be?
2: <laughs> <laughs> it is. And, 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 you know, and and in all those in all those times that we podcast together, we never once talked about interstate commerce.
1: Never, never, never. So this is going to be this is yeah this is going to be a real break from tradition here, Adam.
2: Yeah, but things have moved forward. I'm really excited to actually. I'm really excited to have this conversation. And thank you uh, for having me
1: on. Um, this is great, and it's great to be back podcasting with you, Chris. Awesome, awesome, and with Anne. So I'm going to turn this over to Anne, and you <laughs> yeah. can get us. You can get us I started wanna here. I don't
3: want to interrupt the bro <laughs> <Anne>. here, but
1: <laughs> hi,
3: <laughs> um, Adam. Thank you so much for uh, for joining us. You've been um, a friend of KCSA for a long time, and we're excited to talk to you. But before we jump into the world of interstate commerce and and specifically what you're doing there, can you give the folks listening uh, a Uh, uh, who you are. Um, You know, you are one of the most well-known actors, um, you know, in the in the lobbying and the advocacy for um, for sensible cannabis legislation um, and really a force to be reckoned with. So I wondered if you could give a brief bio to our listeners.
2: So, yeah, so I I come to this from the movement side, uh, not from the industry side. I've never been a license holder Um, a long time ago uh in a planet far far away which was dc um i you know started uh well what was the first regular publication covering drug policy national uh, domestic and international uh from the reform perspective uh which really put me in the center of a lot of incredible work uh from sort of the the blossoming of harm reduction and needle exchange to the beginnings of you know measure 215 in california the beginnings of the modern um uh, cannabis legalization push, uh, and, um, and, and out of that, uh, it, within that work, uh, in about 1998, Bill Clinton signed the higher education act, which eliminated federal financial aid eligibility for any drug conviction. And so if you were, had been popped with a dime bag at 15, you are now lifetime ineligible for federal financial aid. Um, and we had already been working with students from DRCNet, where I was, uh, working and, and publishing the news magazine, uh, and so we started a a project called the Higher Education Act Reform Campaign, um, which was became the first effort uh, that ever rolled back federal drug uh, federal drug policy legislation, federal drug war era legislation. And out of that, um, we, a lot of us launched Students for Sensible Drug Policy, uh, which Chris became later became the executive director of and and which has been, you know, just a, a font of joy in meeting incredible people uh, for 25 years, who've been involved in that. And, and, you know, I, I never ran that. It was just something we did with the students and they took it and did incredible things with it. And so, um, and so skipping ahead, um, I spent a a bunch of my career doing, uh, regular, boring, progressive policy work, labor union stuff, and expanding opportunities for vote by mail and that kind of thing. And then, uh, in 2016, Uh, when Oregon was moving toward legalization and had, uh, legalized medical, um, I started an organization called the Craft Cannabis Alliance. Uh, actually we started right after, uh, federal legal, right after Oregon legalization happened. Um, and the idea was to lift up the, the values driven locally owned, um, cannabis production industry here, which had been here for generations here in Oregon. Um, and... And which was suddenly, ironically, under legalization threatened, Um, and but it became clear to me uh, doing that uh, that the only thing that was going to save the traditional cannabis production industry and not just in Oregon but Northern California as well uh, was access to the markets that we had traditionally served from here right Oregon legalized cannabis and did something that was very wise I think and very Oregonian we really tried to legalize the industry we had and so we made licenses here cheap and unlimited the state ran a, 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 a marketing campaign called go legal um, which said hey we know you're a registered medical grower we know you maybe you're operating in the illicit market please become legal. And thousands of people did that. Uh, But what we didn't think through very well here is that when we legalized the industry that we had, the industry that we had was an export industry. The majority of the cannabis here had always gone out of state. Um, You know, the sort of running joke was, you know, we grow weed here so we can sell it to New York and everyone here can smoke for free. And that wasn't that far from reality. Um, And then suddenly you had all of these world-class growers who grew amazing weed coming up, from medical and from the underground and uh, into a market of 4 million people, uh, many of whom were growing their own or getting it from their friends anyway. And suddenly everyone said, oh, you know, we have, you know, we have an oversupply problem. And, you know, prices went from, you know, 1,800 a pound to 300 a pound in like 15 months. And everybody was scrambling to just try to stay alive, uh, stay in business. Um, And, but the, the issue was we didn't have an oversupply problem. We had a market access problem and that became very um, and because if we could access the markets we traditionally served, we would need every ounce of of, of cannabis that we could grow under current licensure and we would be expanding. Um, and that when politicians looked at this and said, oh, we have an oversupply problem, the answers they came to all hurt suppliers. How do we have fewer of those people? How do we make them grow less? Uh, but when people understood it as a market access problem um, and they start to, started to think about what is the future for Oregon and and more broadly, you know, West Coast uh, cannabis. It is as a supplier of world-class, competitively priced cannabis to markets all over the country and ultimately all over the world. And um, the only way to get there without first wiping out entire communities that have depended upon ca- the cannabis economy for generations is to is to regain access to those markets now in a legal framework. And so, in two thousand, late two thousand eighteen. Um, I decided that I was going to, um, you know, one of the nice things about the fact that the industry here in it, at that time was collapsing is that um, no one was giving any money to any advocacy groups. And so no one was actually paying me. So I got to do whatever I wanted. And so I decided to spend my time trying to open up markets. And so we wrote uh, a, a bill in Oregon in late 2018 and introduced it in 2019 um, that passed, became the first uh, interstate commerce law in the country. Um, and that that law allows Oregon to enter into regulatory frameworks, um, for, for commerce in cannabis with other adult use or medical markets. Um, if one of two things happened, if Congress, you know, essentially legalizes, which don't hold your breath, or if the department of justice indicates tolerance through a memo or policy statement. And of course, Department of Justice tolerance is the only reason the entire industry exists at all. Everything that we are doing, medical and adult use, is federally illegal, remains federally illegal. And in and and, and importantly, everything that the legal and medical markets are doing is already interstate commerce under eighty years of Supreme Court precedent going back to a case called Wickard v. Filburn in 1942 and up through a 2005 case around medical cannabis called Gonzalez v. Raich, which some listeners here have probably heard of. And the, the Gonzalez v. Raich case was interesting because it involved a caregiver giving cannabis to a patient. Not, No money was exchanged. It was in the same state. And the federal court uh, found that that was interstate commerce, that that impacted interstate commerce. And we have always... Uh, We have always defined interstate commerce under federal law very broadly, um, which has given the feds the right to really, you know, to really control or at least uh, regulate commerce all over the country. Uh, And so what we are doing is is already interstate commerce and nothing changes, right? It is just as much interstate commerce to grow cannabis in southern Oregon and send it to Portland as Portland, Oregon, as it is to grow cannabis in southern Oregon and send it to Portland, Maine. No new laws are broken no new no new jurisdiction is is uh, is established. No penalties are enhanced. there is it feels different to cross state lines, but you've already committed the crime the minute the flower leaves the grower's hand. And so uh, and so the idea was that if we got the Department of Justice to broaden its tolerance or at least to be clear that it would tolerate um sale that it would co- tolerate commerce between legal markets as, you know, in addition to within legal markets, that we can make this happen. And so, uh, so we passed that and then started writing a California bill that was supposed to run in 2020 and then COVID happened. Uh, and so that set a, that set it back two years and it did not get introduced till 2022. And it was signed, uh, last year, it was passed and signed last year. And then Washington just signed their bill. And the last thing I'll say, and then I'll let you start asking questions because I'm just going off on this, um, is that there's a difference between the California bill and the Oregon and Washington bills, the Washington bill has the same triggers as the Oregon bill, that Washington needs either Congress to change the law or the Department of Justice to indicate tolerance. The California bill, and we can get into this more later, will allow California to move forward with an opinion from the California um, Attorney General stating that doing so will not put the state in further legal jeopardy. And at the end of January, January 31st, uh, Governor Newsom sent an eight-page memo to to the Attorney General of California, Rob Bonta, arguing for the opinion that he needs to move forward. And so we are, we now have interstate laws in all three West Coast states and we're ready for the next phase. We're going to make this happen this year.
1: Well, Adam, we asked you for your background that I think you just answered every question that we have in our script today. So this has been the Green Rush. Thank you for being with us today. Uh- it's
2: been great, guys. You guys are terrific. And I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. You know, I do this a lot. And so I just <laughs> slid right into it.
1: <laughs> no, no, nobody, nobody can rant about interstate commerce like you can. But that was actually, it was actually quite cohesive, and we, we really do appreciate it. Um, so, you know what? I want to come back to background for a minute, and then we're gonna, and then we're gonna go, and then we're gonna follow up on some of what you said here. Um, you know, you talked a little bit about the founding of Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Um, and that was, uh, you know, that, that's something that I think our listeners are quite familiar with. You know, I, you know, I've I've I obviously am a former executive director. We just recently had Betty Aldworth on, uh, another former executive director and and one of our you know podcast alumni uh, friends. Um, so, you know, I, I'd like you to talk a little bit more about those early days uh, of getting SSCP started. How did that happen? You know, tell us what like what is a .edu email address for uh, for anybody under the age of you know forty five, uh, and uh, and you know and how did that you know how did that play into the starting of SSDP and um, you know tell us a little bit about those about those early days and then we'll come back to uh, you know your favorite uh, interstate commerce topic here. Awesome.
4: no, shockingly, I'm so happy to talk about something else besides interstate commerce <laughs> for a few minutes.
2: Um, ah, uh, so the early days. So, so I got involved. I was in law school up in Boston, not at Harvard, um, In from 92, uh, starting in, in September 92. <laughs> so you don't have to yeah, say that. Yeah, Everybody yeah. Would, have yeah. assumed you,
1: everyone would have just assumed it was Harvard.
2: <laughs> right. Well, this is why I clarify that. If I said I was in law school in Cambridge, right, that would have been a whole different thing. That's um, So, and I was really, I had, I had gotten really interested in drug policy uh, because I had come from New York City where I grew up and grew up going to my local Y and ended up working there with first with the younger kids and then running supervising their teen program with 600 teens and it was the 80s and in New York and it was the height of the drug war and I kept hearing and of course my friends and I used um, you know non-problematically overwhelmingly and uh, we knew that there were kids in our program who were you know 13 12 or 13 to 17 uh, who used and, and we were certainly concerned Uh, you know, about any problematic use we thought we, you know, saw. And, uh, but what I kept hearing was, you know, was politicians say, oh no, we're, we're running, the drug war is to protect the children. And all I kept thinking is, no, no, you're hunting the children. And the last thing we actually want, you know, is for you to get your hands on them. Um, and so I was, I was super interested in, in the absurdities of the drug war when I went to law school and doing a little reading, I ended up tracking down a guy named Ethan Nadelman, uh, who had just started something called the Linda Smith Center, which is now the Drug Policy Alliance. And um, and finding his email address, I literally had email for a week. It was 1993, early 93. And uh, and tracking him down, and, and I ended up speaking to him on the phone, and he said, you know, there's this guy up in Boston, who was at Harvard, uh, named Dave Borden, and he started, I don't know, some email list thing. You should get in touch with him. So I got in touch with Dave Borden, who is sort of a remarkable guy who was getting his PhD in astrophysics at Harvard and was a concert pianist and composer. Uh, and um, and he had started this email discussion list uh, with about 35 people on it. There were, you know, three or four needle exchangers, um, you know, working out of vans in the middle of the night running from the police and a few cannabis activists and some prison reformers. And it was the first place anywhere that people had come together from various parts of the of drug policy to strategize. And I was just absolutely, entirely drawn in. And I spent much more time during my three years in law school on that list and interacting with folks there than I did uh, in my studies. And I did manage to make it through law school and pass the bar, but as soon as I did, or pretty soon after I did, um, Dave uh, raised enough money to pay me for like two and a half months, and I moved down to Washington, DC to become the associate director of a two-man operation. And, and DRCnet, at that point, during my time in law school, the web had happened, and so that little email discussion list had become multiple websites, an online drug policy library, um, multiple discussion lists, topic-oriented, and it had really become the internet center in the very early internet days of drug policy reform. And so when I got down to D.C., you know, we were just making stuff up. You know, oh, legislative alerts. There's legislation. Let's put out an email alert. Like this was all just brand new that, that didn't exist. DRCNet may have been the first ever entirely online nonprofit. It certainly was in drug policy. And uh, and I got to, I got to DC. And what I decided to do next was to start putting together the stories that that were coming through. But going back into those news stories and interviewing people on the reform side, right? In the media at that point, the the entire, you know, the entire policy debate, normally almost everything in the media was about drug busts. But when when they talked about policy, it was all law enforcement and politicians. And so it was an argument between people who thought we should build more prisons and people who thought we should build a lot more prisons. And that was the the parameters of the debate. And But we were having very different conversations. And so I would take stories and interview, you know, someone running a harm reduction site or an academic or a prison reformer and get different points of view, um, into news and, and create original content that way. And that became, uh, because nothing else like that existed, you know, our list went from, you know, three or 4,000 to 25,000. And most people who were involved in drug policy reform, um, you know, or even drug policy and government and academia were, were on our list. And then a lot of what we were doing was getting reposted. And so, uh, it was just this incredible place to be. Um, and, one of the things that that, that drove me crazy is because I cared so much about the kids issue, is that we were doing all this work, but the only youth organizing that existed, or so it was at that time, was really all around cannabis. There was some normal chapters, there were some other non, you know, off-brand cannabis chapters of different things. Um, And we had a lot of conversations with a lot of college students, or I did, uh, you know, saying, look, if you want to build coalition, if you want to gain power, you know, you really need to be working with um, Latino student activists and, and and black student activists and, you know, and folks outside of, you know, a dozen white kids wanting to get high in their dorm room. And because to those groups that were fighting, you know, racial justice and, and other justice, you know, a dozen white kids getting high in their dorm room was not, in fact, a civil rights emergency. And so I, we really encouraged Young people to look into broader drug policy reform, and so, uh, and and into that mix uh, came a little group in Rochester at at Rochester Institute of Technology um, called the Rochester Cannabis Coalition, and the or the Rochester Cannabis Club originally, I think, but in any case, that was Chris Lottlicker, who's now the executive director of MAPS, uh, and Shay Gunther, and a number of others uh, who would be you know, prominently. She. Our, our lovely producer, Shea, uh, who would feature prominently. Uh, and they were fighting for club recognition on their campus. And the president of the university, or at least it got to the president, somebody made the decision there. Cannabis club could not get the whatever it was, $500 in club money, right, that clubs got.
4: And so instead of 12, you know, RIT, you know, geeks getting high in their dorm room talking about the injustice of cannabis prohibition, they became a cause celeb on their campus. And you know, we worked with them pretty closely all through that that whole year as they built a campaign on campus to um, to you know to gain uh, recognition for the club. And so during that year, you know, and through um, this work that we had all done together, and, and you know, they decided that they that they wanted to expand from cannabis and. Uh, became the became students for sensible drug policy and as that was happening so I should say that at the end of that year there was a trustees meeting that they stormed
2: Um, and there was uh, you know the police called it a riot but it was more of a you know spirited young people's demonstration Uh, but several of them were asked not to come back to RIT which is how Chris Lalliker showed up at our doorstep that June uh, and and became our intern and ultimately became the first director of SSTP. And so that had happened and then very shortly after the end of that term the Clinton signed the Higher Education Act and we started the we started the Higher Education Act reform campaign and suddenly we had dozens of campuses organizing and the idea of campus groups being going beyond um, going beyond cannabis, um, we gave them, you know, the, this, this project, this campaign gave them a platform, right? Because this was not just about people with cannabis convictions. It was about people with all drug convictions. And so it was a confluence of, um, of, of events that supported and built on each other. And out of that, Students for Sensible Drug Policy was born. A funny story around that is that initially we, we started having all these normal chapters that wanted to switch, And I kept telling them, you know, wait, wait, wait. And I, I, I called Keith Strop at Normal, Normal's founder, and who I had known for some time, and and asked to take him to lunch. And I took Keith Strop to lunch, and how am I going to tell this guy this legend of you know of cannabis reform that all that all these chapters of his organization want to switch out into something new. And so we start having this lunch and we start having this conversation about what's going on and what we're doing. And I said, you know, we have these normal chapters that want to become students for sensible drug policy and focus on broader drug policy reform. And Keith Straub, God bless him, um, and I have nothing but respect, looked at me and said, Adam, he said, you will never organize college students. <laughs> he said, he said, they cost more than they, than they bring in. He said, you get a leader and they leave. He said, God bless, go take, you know let them do what they want. It's fine. I said, great. And so we came back and sort of, um, you know, put out the word that that was going to be okay. And we got a whole bunch of chapters. And now of course today, most SS, most SSTP chapters are also normal chapters because, which is, and, and for a reason that harkens back to its founding, which is that they get, they get club money for two different clubs and they have basically the same people involved in both. And they'll run meetings back to back and which is very smart. Um, and so, and so we launched that, and Chris Lotliker, who had you know done so much uh, with the RIT guys and Shay, um, to sort of launch that there. Uh, you know, we sort of made him the first director of Norm of SSDP because it wasn't for me. I was thirty years old and, and not a student, and uh, and Chris is just brilliant. It was very clear. Um, and, and off they went, man. And the students have done this for 25 years. Uh, we, we raised that year. We raised, you know, I, I went back to Ethan and begged him for 10 grand for a conference. And we had the first SSDP conference and, um, the rest is really the energy of the students and, um, the justice of the cause. And that's the birth of SSDP.
3: It's so interesting to see all of those people um, who you've mentioned are still so active in the industry. Um, you know, kind of across the spectrum there. So it seems like it was so formative for a lot of those folks who who took it out of a you know a club atmosphere and into you know career and advocacy. It's it's just really cool to see. Um, you know, if we look at where where cannabis is now, you know, and where it was then. It really has come a very, very long way, even though we are so frustrated with it and we feel um, just um, like we're we're Sisyphus, right? Is that the guy who's rolling the <laughs> pushing the, the pushing uh, the rock uh, up, up the hill? Up yeah. The hill? yeah. Um, so, mm-hmm. I mean, but I think it is important to have that perspective and to see really how far we've come. But, you know, being in such a tough spot and I'm going to kind of loop it back to uh, to interstate commerce. Um there the challenges like 280e and federal uh, rescheduling or descheduling um uh, that hinder the ultimate growth of the industry how would interstate commerce help this and how big of an impact could it actually have independent of of revising those other uh regulations and hurdles
4: so one of the reasons that you know i i chose to take this through this path is because um, waiting for Congress to fix cannabis policy has never been a winning strategy.
3: <laughs> really? It hasn't. It hasn't <laughs> happened. Say ha- more.
1: It's <laughs> a bit of an understatement.
4: We the the every single advance in cannabis policy since 1996 and since 1973, when Oregon became the first state to decriminalize, has been the states. None of it has been led by Congress. None of it has actually had any. Um, federal legislation attached to it. It has all been the states moving forward, and since 1996, it has been the states moving forward with the Department of Justice ultimately, you know, first tacitly and then and then uh, and then in in the Ogden memo and then in the Cole memo and now in whatever is coming next uh, in writing, tolerating what the states are already doing. And at first, the states were pushed forward by their voters and it was all ballot initiatives, but now it's also legislatures and governors. And so the, the funny thing in doing this for the last four years is having all these conversations with folks who, who will, will absolutely insist that this can never happen. It must happen through Congress. Only Congress can make this happen. And, and I keep asking, when exactly has that ever been true? And they say, well, this is what you're proposing is federally illegal. And I let them know that every single thing that we've done since 1996 is federally illegal. Um, and this is the past. That is taken. What would it do for the industry? Legal cannabis is broken and failing in, in a multitude of ways. It is—it's failing. It's largely failing as an industry. It is largely failing to um, to move, you know, the, you know, the majority of consumers out of illicit markets, at least, you know, in any reasonable time frame. And into safer regulated markets, it's failing to provide uh, real access for patients in most states, in most legal medical states in the country. Right? It is certainly failing to uh, support small businesses, which you know a small business focused industry is is the is the bulwark, is the basis for any sort of effective equity um, that we can achieve in this industry. And so it's failing. And and if you look, you know, even just locally here on the west coast. The thought that you could legalize cannabis in Oregon and California and have it be failing is mind-blowing. And the reason that it's failing is because we have the economics wrong, is because this is not how the economics of cannabis work. The economics of cannabis have never been 50 you know, state-based production industries, any more than 50 states produce avocados or citrus. And if you made every state, you can you can grow avocados at industrial scale in New Jersey. If you want, you can build a facility. It's a terrible, terrible idea. No one wants a New Jersey avocado. No one wants a New Jersey avocado. And even if you could grow them, and even if you could grow them super well, it's so expensive. It would be so expensive to do it that the minute you have to compete with California avocados, you will be out of business. And so we have set up a system where in, in large swaths of the country, where, which are not really amenable to growing to, you know, cannabis agriculture at scale, you have, you have industries controlled by a small number of limited license holders who can afford you know, 30 or 40 or $50 million for giant indoor and grow facilities, where they will grow every ounce of biomass that, the, that their state industry needs under lights. Um, regardless of the environmental impact, regardless of the cost, regardless of the access to water, land, any of it, labor costs, right? The minute federal legalization happens, the walls will come down. The, the Commerce Clause of the Constitution exists to keep states from having trade wars with each other, right? States cannot um, discriminate against legal products from other states, right? If federal legalization happens, Idaho can still put you in jail for 100 years for a joint if they want. But, but if a state has a legal industry and a market it's not gonna be able to discriminate against Oregon or California or Kentucky cannabis, right? And so we are not only setting up an industry that is entirely based on on the contravention of the laws of supply and demand, but we are setting it up in a way that ensures that much of the the highest uh, capital, of the most capital intensive parts of the industry are going to go under in most of the country the minute legalization happens. That is nuts. That is insane. And to say that we can't do anything about it because, oh, it's interstate commerce, when in fact we're already doing interstate commerce under federal law is also insane. And so watching the, you know, it, this the thought, you know, most people's initial I thought is, oh, interstate commerce is going to help the big players. But actually what interstate commerce is going to do is it's going to let you know, retail distribution, delivery, product development, manufacturing, wellness, hospitality businesses in large swaths of the country suddenly have access instead of a dozen suppliers at high cost, non-competitive, maybe mediocre, have access to thousands of the best suppliers in the country at the most competitive prices. And on the West Coast, especially, and i, I it, what the West Coast is not the only production zone in the country, but I talk about it because I'm here, you know, on the West Coast, you have... The most the, the most efficient world class producers in the in the world in the country that can't make a living that are going out of business because they can't you know because they can't sell into markets where the where nobody has access to anything like what they have for sale right and so you know and so on the on the on the consumer side and the patient side you're getting beaten by the illicit market which is which is getting their cannabis from here. Right. And you're getting beaten on price and quality. And out here, you're driving it all under. There is no like MSO. There are big producers out here, but nobody owns a, a, a significant percentage of the production. There's thousands of suppliers. And opening those opening those markets is going to allow those thousands of suppliers, rather than being driven out of business or consolidated for pennies on the dollar, to to sell their to sell their cannabis and their products at reasonable prices into markets that need them. And then when we have consolidation in the industry, it will happen because people are successful and they're selling their businesses at profits and we don't have to wipe everybody out. And so how that affects the federal side and whether that's banking or is that anything that rationalizes the market, that creates a more national market. And and again, what we are talking about here is a state opt-in. We are not forcing, you know, having the DOJ say that this is okay. We're not forcing any states to open their doors but it would allow states to opt in to commerce. And having the beginnings of a multi-state, multilateral um, uh, you know, regulatory framework for commerce and commerce actually happening uh, in a rational way and an industry actually starting to thrive is going to, is going to drive the conversation at the federal side. Certainly, it will further incentivize banking. But in addition, it will also create a framework that the feds can look at as a model for what they are ultimately going to do the legalization rather than start from zero. So we think we can sort of kickstart more rational, a more rational regulatory framework that is put together by the states that have much greater understanding of the needs of their industries, much more experience with actual you know regulated cannabis and are not looking to wipe out you know every business in their state versus the fed's coming in and and you know Chris will tell you that most of what has been, you know, introduced in Congress, would not be good for most of the industry, and so we. I think that this is the the obvious and rational next step. It is not anywhere near as 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 radical as it sounds, right? And it is the way that cannabis policy has moved forward, and the states taking the next step, and the Department of Justice deciding, yeah, it's not really in our interest to go arrest all those people.
1: So, Adam, on on that note, then uh, I mean, you mentioned that, that this, you know. This is somewhat reliant on the federal government in terms of the Department of Justice, right? Congress probably not taking any action on this anytime soon, um, but these state laws that are being passed that you've been that you've been working on and helping uh, h- helping get an act into law are dependent on some sort of guidance from the federal government, likely from the Department of Justice. How likely do you see that uh, happening, let's say, you know, during this administration?
4: Um. I think that I think that this is the administration that will do that. I think it's very likely Um, Merrick, Well, let's start with President Biden. President Biden, from the beginning of his term, from the first time that that his spokesperson was asked about Adamus, but also he has said this himself, has been very clear that they are going that they trust the states to make regulatory decisions, that they're going to leave this in the hands of the states, that they are not going to get in the way of the states. Merrick Garland has said, including in testimony under oath uh, in Congress. Um, that where, where states are regulating, he sees no interest of the, of the Department of Justice get involved. And again, I would point out that what they are tolerating is already interstate commerce. There is no legal difference between what these laws contemplate and what they're already tolerating. Now, Merrick Garland, back in June, and again, recently on March 1st, um, came out and said that we should expect new guidance, new written guidance, right? Jeff Sessions tore up the, the call Memo, Right, probably wanted to go after the cannabis industry, but got himself in so much trouble with the Trump people by 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 recusing himself on Russia um, that he spent the rest of his term just beating up on immigrants because that's what the Trump people wanted him to do. And so, we have been operating without any written guidance from DOJ since 2017. But Merrick Garland has, like, like I said, in March again promised that coming soon is will be new written guidance. He said it would be very much like the Cole memo. Now the call memo said that if you are operating under state regulation, that the Department of Justice sees no interest in interfering. The call memo did not prohibit regulation between legal markets. It did say that the federal government was concerned with diversion from legal states, but diversion indicates something going somewhere it's not supposed to go. There was nothing in the call memo that would have stopped this. But the truth is that without some further articulation from DOJ, we were not going to get states, particularly consumer states, to like stop what they were doing in setting up their their state siloed markets and have serious discussions about uh, a more rational uh, supply chain. And so what uh, you know, my sense is what we have needed is guidance that is more clear that when they say they're going to leave you alone if you operate under state regulation, they actually mean it. And if that state regulation is between legal markets in a free country, then they are going to leave that alone. And so um, and so our next step, is we are now interfacing with the three governor's offices on the West Coast and preparing to make uh, a public ask of them to reach out to the Department of Justice and ask that their coming guidance take these laws into account and the realities of cannabis into account and be clear that when they say it's okay to operate under state regulation, that they mean that in the broadest sense. And given the, the, the very consistent stance of, of Biden and Garland, and the reality of politics heading into 2024, and the other things on the Department of Justice's plate. I cannot imagine that that they would want to start a standoff or an argument with Democratic governors over cannabis. They've been very clear they don't want to do that. And letting the states regulate this would be exactly in line with their stated, over and over again stated policy of letting the states regulate. And so as much as this seems like some outlier you know, thing that would be you know out of context or 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 out of character. I think this is the exact answer that all points lead to. Their 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 stated policy, their political you know needs and and uh, and the needs of the states that you know whose governors and whose voters um, everyone is going to need in 2024. So uh, we believe so. The next step and it is now and has always been to get the governors of these states to make this ask of Merrick Garland. We know you're coming out with guidance. Um, please make sure it's tolerant of this. And I believe I would be stunned if if we got non-tolerant guidance. And on top of that, a caveat I will throw in is that on the medical side, there is already an amendment. This year it's called the to the federal budget. This year it's called the Blumenauer McClintock Amendment that forbids the Department of Justice, and this has been in every federal budget for 10 years, that forbids the Department of Justice from interfering in state medical programs. There is an Excellent argument, and if you ask O. Blumenauer, whose name is on the amendment, he will make this argument, that that amendment already already bans the Department of Justice from stopping states from bringing in products for their medical program. If Delaware decided that they just don't have enough selection, they're never going to grow enough different kinds of cannabis to really meet their medical needs, and they wanted to fill their shelves with uh, reasonably priced cannabis and get their patients out of illicit markets, that the DOJ would be banned by this amendment from stopping them from transporting it in. And so there is a chance that the Department of Justice can say, well, let's wait a minute on on adult use, but in medical, we can't stop this. And even saying that would immediately open the question for patients all over the country, why can't I get the best and most cost effective medicine that's available? And I think that would be um, you know, that would be a giant step toward the normalization of the industry and would be a multi-billion dollar difference in, in the economics of cannabis. But my strong, my strong political judgment is that if asked by the governors, um, DOJ's guidance will make clear that as long as you are operating, you know, within or between legal markets under state regulation, the feds are not gonna stop. Mm-hmm. Us.
3: Let's say for a minute all of that happens. Um and uh you know you mentioned the state of Delaware, which is <laughs> Which is as many people know on the East Coast, and all of the the kind of interstate commerce chatter is happening on, on West Coast states that are, um, you know, that share borders. So let's say that um, that Merrick Garland um, says, okay, uh, we're not going to interfere w- with this. How how would you even go about transporting, you know, Oregon weed? to the the Delaware medical market when you're crossing states that some some states in the middle of the country have don't even have a medical program how would that work
2: right so this is why while California can move forward without Department of Justice tolerance this is why we believe we need it regardless that even if all three state laws didn't require it that we would need to make this ask of the Department of Justice because because when the department of justice makes clear that they are not going to interfere in commerce between legal markets we can then put we can then almost certainly put product either on planes or on rail which are both federally regulated neither one of which can be can be stopped by some local da in a state right you probably still can't drive it through indiana not because states are likely to stop each other if it was a different product, even if it was, you know, a dry state, let's say, and it was liquor, they almost certainly would not stop it because states don't interfere in each other's commerce and, and the use of the highway system, um, you know, is, is sort of understood there. But because of the political charge of this and also because of the um the polarization and and what seems to be a growing hostility between state governments um i would not recommend trying to drive uh you know trying to drive a truckload of cannabis you know through idaho even if um you know everybody else said it was okay but we believe we will be able to put um we'll be able to put uh product either in the air or on rails or even potentially through the postal service um and uh and if the DOJ is clear that they're not going to prosecute, then there's very little incentive. And, and, you have mul- and you have two states or multiple states who have a regulatory framework set up and their governors agree, there's very little chance that the Rail Commission is going to step in on its own and say, oh no, we have to stop this shipment. And if we really got to that point and we had DOJ and the states and the cannabis ready to go and we were arguing transportation, we're very close to winning anyway, but we don't think that would stop it. But, but I think it may be a, a minute You know, after this happens, before we can drive stuff across the country.
1: So, Adam, uh, I guess a a good follow-up question here is: Let's say we're, let's say you're successful. Let's say this happens, and we start seeing exporter states and importer states at some point here in the next, you know, year or two. Let's talk about the ramifications for the industry as it currently stands. You've talked about how. You know, small producers in places like Oregon, California, in particular, um, would you know would benefit from this. How does this impact the multi-state operators, the publicly traded companies in the space, right? The the eight hundred pound gorillas uh, in in the space, many of whom have built their businesses on you know, limited license markets and 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 these sort of state siloed protections, where they've you know put a lot of money into large scale indoor production, um, you know, in places like Florida or Illinois or Massachusetts or elsewhere. Um, so, you know, how does it impact them and you know, who would be some of the winners and who would be some of the losers in a, in a, in a, in a, in a world where interstate commerce is a reality?
2: Um, so I think the first question is, is, is super interesting. And, um, the, I think for the MSOs that are that who's, who's, uh business model depends on limited license production, protected, artificially protected production. Uh, they would be on notice. I think they would immediately go into the states where they are producing and start arguing to their state governments, asking their state governments not to open their doors. Uh, and they can make that case if they want. Um, you know, the the nice thing about what we're trying to do is it gives states the option, right? And a state like Illinois can decide to keep their doors closed until federal legalization opens them. Or a state like Florida may do the same thing. Um, but you know, a state like Maryland or Virginia that's just opening up a, you know, that's just starting legalization, uh, might decide, hey, we can actually move millions of people out of illicit markets sooner. And they don't have um as much established MSO production. There's some. Um, but um I think that I think that companies that have banked on um, you know, and, and invested in limited license protections, uh, you know, and non- compete basically with, with, with much more efficient and, and mostly better producers or often better producers, um, you know, are going to have to really take a look at how fast they can get their ROI out. I mean, but they had to do that anyway, right? I mean, that the minute federal legalization happened, they were going to have this problem of cannabis from the West Coast coming in and flooding their markets. And to be quite honest with you, in my, you know, overall concern about the various stakeholders and participants in the industry, if, you know, if you are an MSO that was able to raise a couple of hundred million dollars and decided and going into an industry that, you know, was, you know, almost entirely dependent upon uh, policy. And the timing of how everything played out, including legalization, and you invested hundreds of millions of dollars in production in states where it would never be competitive in, 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 in a normal market, um, and you miscalculated the amount of time you had there to get your, get your return out, um, you know, that's business, man. Uh, that's you know that's not really my problem. You got enough lawyers and political people, and you you know you should ask somebody who knew policy better then. Uh, what my concern is right now is that we continue to misincentivize production in all of these medical and adult use markets that are just springing up. You have a whole bunch of small, you know, you know, prospective market participants with dollar signs in their eyes who don't really understand, nor do they have the kind of resources or lawyers or expertise available to them to really understand. I have spoken to a lot of folks who are trying to get licenses, grow licenses in new states who have said, oh, no, my state will never open its doors. We will always have a closed market. And, and, you know, and I have to break it to them that there's no cannabis exception to the commerce clause that's not how this is going to work and we are misincentivizing production also for larger companies in places where where it would never be competitive and this is part of the nat- the broken nature of the economics and every day that we continue to incentivize industrial scale production in places where it's non competitive is a day that we're where we are you know we are burning more and more capital and Again, to the extent that it's capital from publicly traded companies who should have made better calculations, you know, I'm playing the smallest violin. I just, you know, that can't be my concern. But to the extent that it's capital of of smaller producers that may not have those advantages, or also Retail distribution, delivery, product development, manufacturing, wellness, hospitality that are sitting on their hands in some of these states, burning money, waiting for years for a, for a supply chain that, you know, to be to be stable and up and running. And even then the supply chain is so overpriced that they're competing against the illicit market and losing those folks deserve a, a real market to play in. And and those are the people that are getting hurt now that I that I'm, you know, that I'm concerned about. And so, um, you know, so in terms of winners and losers. If 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 the Department of Justice says that they will allow this to happen, I would I would, you know, I would not be, um, you know, betting the house on uh, the MSOs that are dependent upon limited license states. They make they're going to keep they may keep those doors closed and some of them may be successful in keeping the doors closed in all the states they operate in until federal legalization. That's fine. But even going in, you should know that federal legalization, you know, blows up their business model. So such is life.
3: I, th- this is fascinating. And I think not enough people are, are talking about this. So you guys uh, at the Alliance for sensible markets will be hosting a webinar on this very topic on May 10th. And we will have a link uh, in our show notes for our listeners to register and we'll be promoting it on, on social media and all of that good stuff. But can you give our listeners a, a preview of, of what they can expect from that event? Who, who's going to be talking with you and, um, and you know, what What can they take away from
2: it? That's so kind of you. Yes, we have an event yeah. coming up on May tenth. <laughs> um, it is a webinar. I'm really excited about this. Uh, so so the moderator is a, is a man named Mark Hauser. He's an attorney. He was he led the cannabis practice for Reed Smith, which is one of the largest firms in the country. Uh, he now runs Hauser Advisory, uh, where he specifically works with cannabis companies. Um, and so he's one of the most knowledgeable guys and he puts out a, a really good, thoughtful, brief newsletter called Cannabis Musings, which if you find it, uh, you can look it up. It's, it, it's great. It's one of the things I actually read that comes into my inbox. So he will be the moderator and the panel will be myself. Um, Raffi Crockett, who is a commissioner in Washington, D.C., a cannabis commissioner in Washington, D.C., um, who is also she's also on the board of the Cannabis Regulators of Color Coalition. Uh, and Washington, D.C. is an interesting place, and I'll get to that in a second, Um, and Matthew Lee, who is the general counsel for the Department of Cannabis Control in California, and Matt wrote the memo that Governor Newsom sent to Attorney General Rob Bonta, wrote the eight-page memo arguing that regulating commerce between legal markets would not put the state of California in further legal jeopardy. And so, um, you know, Matt is, uh, is brilliant, um, he's got like, you know, he graduated like Oxford and Yale and some other Ivy and yet I find him totally sufferable. He's a good guy. Um, super smart. And so, and it's the first time that regulators, officials from regulatory sides of of, of a producer state and a potential consumer state are going to get together to talk about the realities, the the, the possible pathways how they view that maybe happening, what it would mean for those states. And so it's kind of a first of its kind conversation where we're going to really dig into this from that level and and say, what are what's the, you know, what's the real path? You know, what are the realities from people who are uh, pretty credible on it, not just me crazily telling people that this thing is going to happen. So I'm super excited about it. Um, and I hope you will, uh, you know, jump in. And I will tell you that, um, you know, that, I mean, you're getting, you know, we're doing a, a decent job here, but it, it's also the kind of show, both of that event and this, um, getting a grounding in this issue will help you not be surprised when it happens, because like you said, no one is talking about it. I had friends at Bazinga last week um, or two weeks ago, whenever it was, who said, who said, didn't even come up. And, you know, no, but also we were told there. me, I didn't know, hear it come up once. Yeah. <laughs> nope. But also, but also, but also reminded me of a Mark Twain quote, which is it is impossible to get a man to understand a fact which his paycheck depends on him not understanding, and so a lot of the industry is built on this idea of how this is working, um, and what we are talking about is a is a radical change in that, even though it's not politically radical to do um, and so um, and so therein lies the opportunity if you are if you are expecting this, if you see this coming, if you are paying attention as these pieces fall into place. We just passed Washington. We're about to make a public ask of the governors to 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 reach out to DOJ. Hopefully after that they will reach out to DOJ. DOJ's guidance is coming out. All of these steps, if you are paying attention to what is happening while everyone else is looking elsewhere, that's where the huge opportunity is in this industry. And, you know, I laughed a couple of weeks ago. I was on a call and you know, and I was told um, uh, by someone, I won't name who it was, you know, that this will absolutely never happen, that this is totally crazy. It will never happen. And, and I realized that the person that was talking to me has already lost about 90% of his market value and has spent hundreds of thousands of dollars not to be able to have a bank account on federal lobbying. And so, and telling me that the only way we can move forward is federally and, and that states can't move the policy forward. And I just said, okay.
3: Well, did you tell him the quote?
2: (laughs) No. I just, I just, you know, (laughs) it it is, it is, as as much as sometimes it feels like I want to, sometimes I just, you know, want to allow people to walk forward in their ignorance. (laughs) Is that mean? (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> <laughs> no if they're not open to it they're not open to it that's on them not on they're you. they're not
2: open to it <laughs> that's that's you know so you know the nice thing about doing this and 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 you know we are working with uh, a coalition of industry associations and advocacy groups uh there are industry associations um, you know, in, in Oregon and California and Washington that we are working with, we are going together to the governors. There's going to be like at least 15 organizations ask the governors to make this ask. It is not that nobody sees this coming, but it is that the, the corporate side of the cannabis industry does not see this coming. And that's where the opportunity is.
1: Adam, this has been awesome. Um, just want to close it out with a familiar question for you. So, uh, Adam Smith, what's your finishing move?
2: Ah, uh, my finishing move.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> you should have you should have given me a warning, man. I should have known. No, I, I couldn't known. give you
1: a warning. I couldn't give you a warning. I wanted you to be unprepared, <laughs> just like the old days.
2: <laughs> so, so I, I give a I give you a couple of quick shots. Um, radical as this sounds, we would be in this place in 2021 if it wasn't for COVID. Right. We we would have been, you know, Oregon, and then. Uh, California bill was supposed to go in 2020. Washington followed California. All of this would have happened two years ago. We are overdue to make this happen. And so this is going to happen before the end of 2023. We will have states and their regulators in serious conversation about, um, about how to set up a framework to make this happen. The second thing I will say, which we didn't touch on, which I think is important, is that is that we do not need a whole bunch of states to totally coordinate their regulations to make this happen, right? We can start this very easily by saying anything that goes into New York, say, or New Jersey, has to meet the standards already in place in those states. And that means Oregon or California labs or Oklahoma labs or whatever, will have to test to the New York standard, but that is not. Um, not difficult, nor is it difficult to, to put whatever New York wants on their packaging together. And so don't be fooled by people telling you it will take years and years to coordinate, uh, regulations. That's not true. Um, and the last thing I will say is that, you know, I've been out here on the West coast now, I'm a New York kid, uh, but I've been out here on the West coast a long time. It is, it is, it is dark times in the industry out here and, and what is left of, um, everywhere, everywhere. The, the, the legal cannabis is broken because the economics are wrong and, and watching what is left of a multi-generational industry that was not only an industry out here, but also was the base of the activism that changed these laws. Right. And that moved us to where we are now watching those people, you know the ones who are still left desperately trying to keep their heads above water you know while while you know while more and more states legalize and think about how they're going to set up from nothing entirely indoor production industries that that everyone who knows anything knows are going to go under the minute they have to compete it is heartbreaking and um and so we you know so it is just it feels like something has to break, and I think that the legislators on the West Coast and Governor Newsom—keep an eye on Governor Newsom, who's been, who I think is going to be very aggressive on this—sees um, that this is the next step, and so um, we're going to make it happen this year.
1: That's awesome, Adam. All right, and fi- fi- final, final question, which I know all of our all of our listeners are really interested in. Uh, how, how you feeling about the Mets this year? <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, man, you're asking me in a tough week and we're about to play the Braves. Uh, you and I and Lewis, man, we're, we may be in for a long summer. I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it short sure because nobody else cares about this but you and me and Lewis. Um, the, the, um, I would be okay if it turns out that, that this isn't the year, that there's too many injuries. You know, As long as we don't trade the future to try to spackle holes, even if we go with a really young lineup next year that's not ready to win, I'm good with that. Please don't train away the kids.
1: I love it. I'm with you. Brett Beatty for uh, Rookie of the Year. Let's do it. <laughs> Excellent. All
3: right. Well, we know Steve Cohen listens to this, so, you know, hopefully he, he heeds your advice.
1: Does he? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Steve, oh, Steve, man, have sure. me out
3: fan. to a
2: game. <laughs> God, thank you so much. This has been fun. I mean, it's just was me talking. So I don't know how much fun it was for you. But you guys are great. And well, I really we love appreciate listening to
3: you talk. Yeah, no, this was really great. And I think it's very obvious that we've just just barely scratched the surface. And, uh, you know, we're excited for uh, the webinar. We'll make sure that we've got links to to everything in the show notes. And uh, really, really appreciate appreciated having you on today, Adam.
2: Awesome. You guys have a great weekend. I know we're doing this on Friday. I shouldn't say that. Maybe the people listen to it on a Tuesday. You guys have a great rest of your day.
1: (laughs) You too, Adam. It's been been
3: awesome. So much fun. You too. Our thanks to Adam Smith, founder and president of the Alliance for Sensible Markets and friend of KCSA. Check out his work at sensiblemarkets.org. And we'll make sure that we put a link in the show notes to the webinar that's coming up on May 10th. We really hope you can listen. As always, thank you for listening to this podcast. If you want to chat with us, you can find us on Twitter at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast or drop us an email at greenrush at KCSA. We love your feedback and guest ideas. And please don't forget to subscribe to the Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. That's one take, Shay. One take.
1: Canibus. Canibus.